I too wanted to tell all of the fathers, I pray that you are blessed and feel the smile of God and enjoy this day. You have an unbelievably high calling, Dad, so happy Father's Day. Oh, we'll do a foot clap again, huh? You know, before we uh, take a look at the next artifact, which I'm very excited to show you, I wanted to share a little story. And it, all right, I'm bragging just a bit, so, so permit me a moment of arrogance. I am the proud winner of this Timothy Award. I was in Awana, too, many years ago. And as a fifth grader, I think I was 11 years old, I had finished my books and memorized those verses, and I was awarded this Timothy Award. And the day that I received it, I will never forget. We had a big awards banquet at church, and there were, you know, hundreds of people going to be there, and wouldn't you know, I got sick. I, I had the stomach flu. I was green, and I told my mom, Mom, I think I'm sick. She goes, you look terrible. And she said, Jeff, I guess you can't go to the awards banquet tonight. And this, uh, this strong passion rose up in me in that moment. And I said, no, Mom, I must go. I have to be there. She was like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. She goes, all right, if you think you feel well enough. And so I went. And it was a big to-do. And I walked up onto the stage, and as I got on the stage, I got sicker. I don't know how that was happening. Maybe the added stress, I don't know. But the whole room started spinning, you know, and I'm, oh. And I, I'll never forget, I, I, I shook the hand of the pastor, and then I was handed my Timothy Award, and then I turned to the congregation, and I vomited all over standing front and center, just launched it. It was quite a moment. There was some in the cup. But I, I will never forget, one of the most horrendous moments of my life, I can still see the people in the front pew jumping, you know, leaping over, you know, trying to get out of the way. I, I, I was famous from that moment on. People told stories of me at church. Some of you are like, did you really do that? I have, I have a picture that I believe will help me prove this, all right? So here's my Timothy Award. Can you pick me? That's me over there. And look at that sorry attempt at a smile. The photographer had said, smile, everybody! And that was the very best I could do because I was so, so sick. Compare that to my brother-in-law, Steve. That's a real smile, you know, and the contrast makes it evident. Something's going on with Jeff. If you look real closely, my dad gave me his handkerchief. It's in my hand there to wipe up my mouth because I needed to be cleaned up right there. One more little piece of proof. My friend Kent is leaning away from me uh, <laughs> quite a bit. I mean, he's crowding Steve over here. You know, I was smelling pretty bad at that moment. And so. When I look back on that moment, I, I can tell you I learned something about myself, about life. I learned, to my surprise, that I have an unbelievably strong desire for applause. I, oh, thank you, that's very kind of you. It's a monster, don't feed it, all right? We've all got this desire for the approval of others, for others to say, you're great. I think you're wonderful. 
And that desire to please and feast on the approval, the admiration of others is a beast in me and in you. It's in all of us. And I also learned that this desire for the applause and the approval of others can be a force that leads us to unwise decision-making, like going to an awards ceremony when you should be at home in bed. And those unwise decisions can be disastrous. And what I learned in a small moment as a kid, I have found to be true as an adult in all of life. And so we're going to talk about this desire for the approval of others, because God wants to speak to us on that topic. And uh, to make our transition into the text of Scripture, we need to go back to my favorite museum. In 1925, the archaeologists from the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, they were invited to go over to Israel and conduct an archaeological excavation in the very important city of Megiddo. Megiddo is located north-central Israel. It's a very strategic location where travel routes crisscross, and as a result, there have been many monumental historical battles at the location of Megiddo. In fact, the book of Revelation predicts that the final war to end our earth, the battle of Armageddon, will take place at Megiddo. As the archaeologists from Chicago excavated in this site, they discovered many aspects of this massive city that Solomon built. They discovered many objects, and the one that excites me and excited them the most is this incense altar. In the Bible, God instructed the people of Israel to create two altars, a big one for burnt offerings, where the animals were sacrificed, and a smaller version for burning incense. And sure enough, this incense altar meets the biblical description perfectly. God had instructed in Exodus 30 verse 2, God said, make the incense altar 18 inches square and 36 inches high with horns at the four corners carved from the same piece as the altar itself. This altar matches the biblical dimensions perfectly. And these protrusions at the four corners are what they call horns. I was so excited to be looking at an artifact made in the day of Solomon that matches the biblical description perfectly. And then I got troubled as I started wrestling with this question. Why is the altar of incense in Megiddo? So standing here in Chicago at the Oriental Institute before this altar, I really did go through this emotional roller coaster. At first, so excited. You know, I'm reading what the information they're saying. It dates to the days of Solomon. So I'm imagining as Solomon was the the builder of Megiddo, he probably was the one that commanded this incense altar to be built. And so I'm looking at an incense altar that was built at the command of King Solomon. And I'm reading Exodus 30 and seeing that it matches the biblical instructions of God. And I'm just like, this is great. And all of a sudden, I just got sick. 
to my stomach. Because it dawned on me, and maybe you're aware of this, God was very explicit in his instructions that there was only to be one altar of sacrifice, and there was to only be one altar of incense, and they were to be in Jerusalem alone. God made it clear, actually, from the days of Moses that there was only to be one place of sacrifice, and all the people were to travel to that location. And God says, don't set up altars anywhere else. And Megiddo is quite a distance from Jerusalem. And so I'm like, doggone it, this is not good. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't match God's directives. Why was it there? Did a little research, came across a verse that I want to read to you that still a failure on the part of God's people, but God, in his word, tells us that altars were going to end up in places like Megiddo, or they did end up. Look at this. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon, this is the guy who was alive and ruling at the time of that altar. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David starts off with a great celebration of Solomon's devotion and love to the Lord. Except, that's the bad word there, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The one failure, later in Solomon's life there's a lot of failure, but early in his godly days, the one failure was burning incense and offering sacrifices on what's called high places. Now, I want to acknowledge I'm using the NIV. Normally, I've been using the New Living Translation, which translates, uh, the actual word here is bamot for high places. The Hebrew is bamot. And the, the New Living Translation translates as pagan shrines. I don't like the translation pagan shrines. I prefer high places, and that's why I chose to use the NIV. Pagan shrines implies that only pagan deities, pagan gods, were worshipped at these high places, when careful study of the scripture indicates that was not the case. Bamot literally means hilltop, open place of worship. And so throughout the land of Israel, in the various towns and villages, there would be these high places, these hilltops where they would set up altars. And I'll acknowledge that originally pagan gods were worshipped at these places. But as the people of Israel conquered and took over, they converted these high places to the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And Solomon allowed the people to worship God at their various local places of worship, the high places, and he did not tear them down as God had instructed. Now, before we jump on Solomon, you should know that this was the chronic failure of most of the godly kings in Judah. Let's go to the next slide. These are all, you know, and let me tell you, godly kings in Judah were in short supply, and so we need to celebrate them. These were the most godly kings that they had, and yet we find that this toleration of worship at the high places was their failure as well, just like Solomon. All these different verses that align with King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham 
all of them are almost parallel verses that say, they follow the Lord with all their heart, except that they allowed worship at the high places. They failed to remove the high places. Isn't this interesting? At this point, as I'm studying, I am so interested. Why? Why did all of these godly kings follow God in every way except this chronic failure? In fact, the only three kings that obeyed God fully in in the form of even removing the high places, maybe you could guess, they were King David, Josiah, and Hezekiah, one of the kings we've been studying so much. Those three were the only ones who obeyed God even to the point of saying no local altars. In fact, let me read you a verse about Hezekiah and this topic. You'll recall, if you've been a part of this series for some time, that the king of Assyria, by the name of Sennacherib, had come down to Jerusalem and uh, performed a siege. They camped around the walled city and were waiting them out, starving them out, trying to break them down intellectually, emotionally. And one of the messages that uh, Hezekiah, or, that Sennacherib shouted to the people was this. Don't you realize that Hezekiah is the very person who destroyed all the Lord's shrines and altars, high places? Uh, He commanded Judah and Jerusalem to worship only at the temple. Do you see what's going on here? Sennacherib, who's trying to get all these people to give up, he chooses his intellectual, uh, emotional warfare. He targets his message on this one decision that Hezekiah made. He says to the people, and the people were from all over. They had run to Jerusalem for refuge. They had come to hide behind the wall. They had left their small towns. Sennacherib, he looks at them and he says, people, why are you following this Hezekiah? He's the one who took away your precious high places, your precious local worship spots. Sennacherib's a smart man. He targets this message because he knows this is the most unpopular decision King Hezekiah has made. The populace wanted their high places. These kings, all these seven kings that failed, they're politicians. Can I rip on politicians for just a moment? If you're a politician, I'm grateful that you're serving publicly. But uh, politicians are people pleasers often. Maybe I'll throw them under the bus and I'll throw myself under the bus too. Politicians and pastors are people pleasers, okay? We long to make happy those who we lead and serve. We long for people to say, you're great, we like you. And as politicians, they understood the basic premise of politics. You've heard this before. All politics is local. And what that means is it's a study of people. It means that people are not nearly as interested in the big national laws as they are in the more local laws that affect them and their community. And these politicians in the Bible understood that. They were like, wow, I can't believe how badly these people want 
you know, I'm trying to tell them, we're going to build a great temple in Jerusalem and we're going to renovate it and make it very convenient for you to come and use. People didn't care about that. They cared about their high place. And so all of these kings, desiring to make the people happy, said, fine. As long as you worship the Lord, I'll let you keep your high place, even though God had said, tear it down. Isn't that interesting? What we find in those men, those kings, and us, is this insatiable desire to please people. Even in the New Testament, there's an interesting verse in John where Jesus is uh, interacting with politicians, leaders, political leaders. And these politicians had the similar problem. The context is that Jesus had spoken and impressed some of these local politicians so profoundly that in their hearts they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And yet they couldn't bring themselves to confess it with their mouths. They believed it, but they never let anyone know. They hid it. And the explanation for why they hid it is found in John 12, verse 43. It says this, They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Wow. Can I just ask you, what do you love more? The approval of God or the approval of people? And you say, the approval of God. Yeah, that's the right answer. Correct. But I want to know what's the true answer in your heart. What drives you more? What is the compelling influence that drives you in your decision making? Is it so that people like you and think you're great? Or is it to honor God? People pleasing is a terrifying way to live. Can I just warn you of that? When you love the approval of people, when you are driven by that, it is destructive to the soul. I was talking with a friend of mine who was confessing his people-pleasing at the workplace. And he goes, Jeff, I want everybody to be so impressed with me. I want my boss and my coworkers and my higher-ups and my subordinates, I want them all to just love me. And he goes, you know what? It's causing my soul to happen, what's happening in me. He goes, I, he goes Jeff, I work for Aramark. And he goes, let me show you the logo of my company. Uh, he says, this is me. I'm being drawn and quartered. I didn't know what he was talking about, but he's saying, look, it's like they've, pull, uh, they've put uh, ropes on each of the four limbs and they're stretching me so far that my head's popping off. He said, that's, that's what I feel like these days. When he said drawn and quartered, do you know what that is? There was a medieval torture form of execution that was just horrendous. Traitors were submitted to the worst of, of the tortures, where quite literally they would tie a rope to the four limbs of a person, and then they tie each of those ropes to a different horse and send the four horses running in a different direction and tear you into four pieces. Horrible, uh, but not a bad picture of what a people pleaser feels like. You know, you're like, can I make you happy? And I'll do whatever I can to make you happy. And oh, I'm not giving enough attention and effort to please this person. And the next thing you know, our soul is fractured and we're dying. Can I make the case 
that being a God-pleaser above all else is an easier way to live? In fact, I would say that pleasing God is easier than being a people-pleaser. And you say, pleasing God is easy? God demands our whole lives. That's true, but I'm still going to stand by what I said. It's an easier way to go, to be a God-pleaser. First of all, there's only one. <laughs> there's only one. You know, it simplifies life, doesn't it? It's like, I don't know if you like me, but ultimately it doesn't matter because I live for an audience of one. I live to please Almighty God. That's all. It simplifies life down. And I would also add this. God is easier to please because all he asks for ultimately is our obedience. You know, the world wants our success. It's not enough that we give our best effort to the world. We better succeed. We better impress. And I can't promise success, but I can promise obedience. I'm going to fall, but in God's grace, he'll forgive. And I can get back up and say, Lord, I'm going to do my best to live for you. Whatever you call me to, I'll do my best. And God says, if you do your best, if you obey, that's all I'm looking for. Folks, that's a path that with God's help we can live in. It's doable. The path of people-pleasing is not doable. It's destructive. And so these days, I'm wanting to be characterized by the opposite of this verse. I'm wanting to live for, to love the smile of God and to be detached to not need the approval of others. It's been said that those who fear God alone fear no man. And I want there to be a boldness in my life, a strength in me, a a confidence in the face of my own failure because I know that God's smiling on my life. And if people don't like me, people reject me, it doesn't affect me, because I'm not living for them. I'm living for the audience of one. Now, I say that real triumphantly. To live it has been altogether very difficult for me. Uh, I am, uh, her confession, I am a people pleaser uh, to the core. Probably beat anybody. I'll take you on in people pleasing, and I think I may win. There is just a side of me that needs to validate my worth by people saying, I like you, and you're great. And that is not healthy. I love the approval of people too much, and I need to feast on and find my identity in the approval of God alone. I'll share with you, I had a three-month period just recently that was extremely difficult for me. It it addressed this area of my life more directly than any other moment in my life. That period was from the first week of February of this year to the first week of May of this year, three-year period. In that period, it was a period between when I announced at my last church that I am leaving to the day that I actually left, three months my, my announcing that I feel God's call and that I am leaving was the most unpopular decision that I made in my church. Uh, no one was excited about it. Now, they, some said some very nice words, and there was lots of love that I received. I don't want to miss 
state things. But it was very evident to me that I had disappointed the people I loved the most. And many were painfully honest with me, and I am grateful for their honesty. But as I said, how are you doing with this? Some said, I'm really mad at you, Jeff. They said, I feel like you're letting me down. We were committed to this church together. I understood us to be in this together, and now you're abandoning us? You're deserting us? Some say, I feel rejected by you. Some said, I'm questioning your love for us. Now, many of them would say, this is my deal. This is not your deal, and I appreciated that. But as a people pleaser, for three months I stood in the lobby and I shook hands with these people and I greeted these people and there was this awkwardness in every exchange. They loved me, but man, they were honked off that I was leaving. And I prayed. I'm like, God, this is killing me. Every day I come home from church, I'm like, this is not good, God. This is not good. Something's dying in me. All this, uh, all this rejection is just... And God, my heart said, oh, no, this is real good for you, Jeff. This is real good. This is exactly what you need. No, Lord, I need people to love me. And he said, no, you don't. You need me to love you. And you are following me in this moment. And no one else is going to say, "Woohoo, way to go. Follow Jeff. Follow God, Jeff. And, 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 and God said, Jeff, this is going to be painful. But it's going to be purifying. And so I, I, I leaned into it with God's grace. And I said, Lord, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to follow you when it's unpopular. And in the act of obedience, I pray that I become less addicted to the approval, the pat on the back of others. And now I'm cured. I'm no longer a people pleaser. <laughs> You laugh because you know, I doubt it's that easy, Jeff. Yeah, you're right. Uh, even on Monday, I realized that I'm still battling this disease. Monday night was uh, our monthly elders meeting. Maybe you're aware that uh, the Compass Church is elder-led. We've got this elder board that represents the congregation and ensuring that the church is headed in the right direction, and they function as the boss of the senior pastor. Do you desire to please your boss? I do. And it was evident uh, at the elders' meeting. I, I went into the elders' meeting going, man, I wonder how they think things are going. It's been a month. I hope they're pleased, you know. They're observing this new guy. And, man, did I want them to be happy so strongly. The elders' meeting went on. There were great moments. There were some moments when I was disappointed with my own interaction. And as I drove home and as I got in the car, I started reviewing the meeting and my uh, performance, terrible word, my performance in that meeting. You ever do stuff like that, you know, where you're like, oh, man, how'd I do? And the thing that immediately came to mind was all of my moments of failure in that meeting. There was one question in particular where an elder asked me, Jeff, how are you going to handle this? And the truth was, an answer to that question should have already been settled on. I should have been able to say, here's how I'm going to handle this. The timing was, I should know now. 
I had failed to process that decision, and I didn't have an answer. I, I stalled at first. I'm like, oh, good question, good question. How am I going to handle that? Yes. Uh, well, what I'm going to do, you know, the, the, the first, uh, when I handle that, the first thing that I'm going to, you know, I'm like, actually, I don't know. Yeah, and, and I said, I, I don't know yet. I, I should have thought it through, but I haven't yet. And they're like, oh. And then I, I started, so I'm thinking about that. I'm like, man, they think I'm an idiot, Lord. As I'm driving home, I'm like, that was a, Griffin, why didn't you have an answer for that? And so I'm really getting down on myself. And then I sort of remember this other question someone asked that led to a sermon on my part. Uh, they were... They were answering, asking a question that honestly only needed a short answer, but in my own insecurities, you know, the mouth just took off, you know. And at a certain point, I realized, what am I doing, you know? And then I land the plane, Jeff, and, and I, I, I stopped. But as I'm driving home, I'm like, oh, why did I preach a sermon? Oh, Lord, that was good. They think I'm an idiot. And these thoughts are going through my mind. And, and I'm feeling sick about my own failure to get the approval of men. And then it dawns on me, what am I doing? This is me again, desperately needing to get people to like me. That's not what I live for. I live for the approval of God alone, an audience of one. So ultimately... Ultimately, how the elders feel I'm doing is not what I live for. Now, God wants me to serve the elders and obey the instructions of the elders, but I do it for God, ultimately. And so I, as I was driving the car, heading north on 294, on Monday night, heading north on 294, I met God again. And, and I said, God, you evaluate. How am I doing? And I go, Lord, those were some bonehead moments there. And in my heart, I heard God say, yes, those were bonehead moments there. <laughs> but Jeff, you're doing okay. And I'm proud of you, son. That's what I heard in my heart. That's the sense I got from the Father, is that he sees I am pouring my heart into it out of obedience to him, seeking to do a good job. And as I drove north on 294, the approval of my heavenly Father reigned into my soul. And I made a turn emotionally from beating myself up because I was trying to please everybody to remembering that I live for the audience of one and basking in God saying, you're obeying me. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. Folks, I'll tell you, this need to please and get the approval of people will kill you. It'll suck the life out of your soul. This decision to live in the grace-based relationship with God through Jesus Christ and hear him say, I know you're just a normal human being, but you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to ask you to obey me. And we say, Lord, I'll do my best. I'll fall, I'll get back up, but I'm going to obey you. And if people like it, great. If people don't, that's fine. But I'm going to serve you. When I die to myself in service to others, it's not going to be to gain their approval. It's going to be to serve you because you've asked me to. When I uh, sacrifice for the sake of others, it's not going to be to gain their approval. It's going to be because you asked me to and I'm doing it for you. 
God, help me to live a selfless life out of obedience to the audience of one and not in a desperate attempt to gain the respect, the approval, the love of others. Let's pray for ourselves towards this end. Lord, uh, we relate to the kings of Judah who couldn't bring themselves to abandon the approval of others. They needed it. God, sometimes we do too. Would you teach us to be men? Would you teach us to be women who live for you and for you alone? Would you teach us to sense your presence and to feel your smile? Would you help us to sense your grace when we fall and your encouragement when we obey? And God, make us men and women who are fearless of people because we fear you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.